Amen. You may be seated. If you would bow with me in prayer and then we're going to begin acts together today. But let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for this day. Uh, We thank you for the time that we have to gather together as your people. We pray that you would uh, meet us in this place, that your spirit would be uh, our teacher, that the Holy Spirit would move freely in this place. Uh, As we confess each time that we gather together and we open your word, we cannot do this on our own. And so we ask that you would be here illuminating our hearts and our minds, showing us uh, reality as it is, showing us the truth of your word. We pray that you would be well pleased with everything that is done and said here this morning, and it'd be for your honor and your glory. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, as we as we begin today, we're beginning a new series in Acts, and I was thinking uh, about an old story I'd heard at different times. You may have heard it before. Uh, you know, I don't know how true the story is, but the illustration still stands. But uh, it's of a, of a mother with her young daughter uh, and they're cooking together with grandmom, three generations together in the kitchen and they're cooking and they're making a meal together. And so mother and grandmother are teaching the young girl kind of the traditions that they do as a family and the way they cook and the way they do things. And so as they're preparing this meal uh, the, the mother tells the daughter, the youngest of the group, that's just nine or ten years old. And she says, OK, when we cook this, when we cook this ham, we do it this way. We put these seasonings, these things on it. We do it like this. And then we cut both ends of the ham off and then we put it in the pan and then we, we wrap it up and we put it in the oven. That's how we do it. And so the little girl's following all the directions and she says, OK, yes, we do this. We do it this way. Cut the ends off. We put it in. And she stops and she says, well, mom, why do we cut the ends of the ham off? And she goes, oh, well, that's the way we've always done it. That's what my that's what I've always done. That's what grandma did. And the grandmother nods and says, yes, that's what she says. But yeah, but why do we do it? And the grandmother kind of looked and she said, well, I did it because that's the way my mom did it. And, and so they all kind of are perplexed. And so she says, well, let's call great grandmother. So the great grandmother's still living. And so they pull out cell phone, put it on the table, call together. She says, she'd love to hear from us. And so they call her and they get her on the phone. They said, hey, we were making your recipe We're preparing this ham. We're about to cook it. Why do we cut both ends off? And the grandmother, the great grandmother starts kind of giggling. And she says, well, I always cut both cut both ends off because it wouldn't fit in my pan. And she says, oh, oh, okay." so that's and she said, yeah, if it fits in your pan, don't cut both ends off. That's crazy. You're wasting part of a good ham. And so, they go, oh, OK, OK, well, I, I was thinking about that. Maybe you've heard that before, that old that we do things sometimes that are handed down and we do them over and over and we say them and we do them. And then we stop and we go, why do we do that? And I think as we go into the book of Acts that we're going to start today, the book of Acts is the beginning of the church. We're, we're going to see here in Acts chapter one, the ascension of Jesus and the last words that he gives to his very first followers before they go out and the spread of the church goes through the whole world. And what we're going to see as we do so and as we work through Acts in the coming weeks is I think there's a lot of things that we do that are kind of like cutting the ends of the ham off. We do all these things that we don't really stop to think about. And when we go back to Acts, I I would dare to say what we see on these pages that God has inspired and he's kept for us is, man, they did things differently than we do in a lot of ways. There's a lot of things happening in the way God is moving and the way he's working that are different than the way we do. And it's a good uh, thing to stop and look at it and think about why do we do the things the way we do and what is it that we maybe need to rethink about 
And what is it here that made their witness so incredible and the, uh, the growth of the church so exponential and just explode from just a few people huddled in a room together to thousands upon thousands to what you see today of, of millions and millions of Christians the world over? Billions of Christians. And so I just say that as a way, as kind of a big picture as we start Acts. As we jump into Acts, if you want to look there with me, real simple what we're going to do as we look at Acts chapter 1. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles, the one that has the white stripe on it, it's on page 5. Uh, or I'm sorry, the blue stripe on it is 591. And the one that's all white, it's on page 530. If you want to follow along with us as we're going to be looking in Acts. And so as we do, real simple, the way we're going to look at these first 11 verses is just simply this. Jesus' last words to his disciples before the ascension. Very important, and he gives kind of our marching orders, the mission, what we're to be about as a church. And so what I want us to consider is the mission that Jesus gives us. Secondly, the power with which we are to do it or we're to live this out. And then lastly, we'll just consider how do we take steps towards this as a body to to grow into a fuller understanding of what Jesus is calling us to. So the mission, the power, and then we'll think practically how we do this today. And so when we think about the mission, let's just begin. Let's jump right into the beginning of Acts chapter one. And so it says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so I'm going to stop there for just a second. Real briefly, background to Acts. We know from internally in the book, we know from externally what we know from history. Acts is written by Luke. Luke was a physician, an earlier follow, early follower of Jesus. And he set out to write this very clear um, uh, historical account of what happened in the early church. And he says here... Uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with what Jesus began to do and teach. And he's talking about the life of Jesus. In the first book, we know that Luke wrote is the gospel of Luke. And so oftentimes when we consider Luke and Acts, we put those two together and we say Luke, Luke, Acts, volume one, volume two of Luke's work of explaining what happens. And so real simply, when we get to Acts, what we're doing is we're picking up at the end of Jesus's life, his earthly ministry after the resurrection we're going to see the ascension here in chapter one, but then we, we pick up from there on. And so really what we're doing is we're looking at A.D. 30 to about A.D. 63 in the book of Acts. And Luke's just telling you what happened. Jesus ascends. He gives the marching orders. The word goes out and this is what happens. And so Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, as it may say in your Bible. It's the early church and what's unfolding and what happens. And so really we're picking up with what we celebrated a few weeks ago at Easter. Now the, the spread of the gospel, the proclamation of what God has done in Jesus. And so that's what we're looking at in Acts. All right. So let's look at what Jesus says and what he tells them. And so we're 40 days after the resurrection. And he says he appeared to them for 40 days. This is the last day because he's going up. He's about to be ascended. Are about to ascend. And so verse four, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So Jesus says, hang out here. You're going to wait for this gift that is coming of the Holy Spirit. 
And then he says in verse six, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be with my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And so the very last words that Jesus says to the very first followers, the very first disciples, the apostles gather around and he gives them this mission statement of what they're to go and do. Oftentimes we talk about it as the Great Commission. We see it here in Acts 1.8. It's also in Matthew 28, a little different formula the way he says it there. I'd say it's also in John chapter 20, and we'll talk about those in just a minute. But what we see here is he gives them this order. And I just want us to think about what that mission statement is. And so he says here in verse eight, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when we say witness, we're to be a witness. He tells them that uh, I think normally if we say that today, we get the connotation of uh, a court case, someone being called as a witness. And I think that's a pretty good analogy here to think about it. If you're called as a witness, you go to tell what you saw. That's why you're there. You have some information that is pertinent to the case. They call you to the stand and you just recount what you saw. You're a witness to these things that happened and that's what you're to tell. And and that stands. That's exactly, I think, what Jesus is telling them. These are his disciples that have been with him every day for the last three years. And they've seen everything that Jesus has done and taught and the healings, and the miracles, and what he said. They saw him be crucified publicly, put to death, laid in a tomb, and three days rise again. And so when we talk about the mission of the church and what Jesus gives the earliest followers as their marching orders, is they are to tell what happened in this world in real history and time and space. It's not just a philosophy. It's not some teachings. It's not just some things that you're to go and try to integrate into your life. There is a reality of what has happened through this historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, you go tell them what you've seen. That I came and I lived this perfect life. I loved God and loved people perfectly. He did it in every way. And then he was crucified and then he rose again from the dead. Showing that he is God over all creation. That he has defeated sin and death. And he said, you go be witnesses to this. You go tell what you've seen. And you go and let people know. Now, when we hear that today, I say that's still our mission statement as a church today. To be witnesses to what Jesus has done. But if you're thinking about it in our terms in a a courtroom setting or those things. You go, wait a second, I wasn't there. I didn't actually see physically Jesus raised from the dead. But what I would say to you today is that you have, if you're a believer and you've put your faith in Jesus, you have met Jesus. And you know what he's done in your life. And you know how he's come in and and what he's turned you around and the way he's shown you his love for you. And you are a witness to what Christ has done for you in your life. And so that uh, the, the orders that he gives for the disciples to go be witnesses to the world over still stands for us today. We're to do the same. We're to bear witness of who Jesus is and what he's done. But I want us to think deeper about what exactly that looks like. 
Because look at what he says here. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If you know anything about what he just said, places where they are, it just told us a little further up in verse four that they weren't to depart from Jerusalem. So they're in Jerusalem. And so the formula begins with where they are. And then he says, you're going to go from where you are and then you're going to go to Judea. Judea would have been the the larger region that Jerusalem is in. It'd be kind of like today saying you're going to go to Dawsonville and then to North Georgia. Or Dawsonville and then Georgia. Right? It's getting larger. And then he says Samaria, the next circle out. And then to the ends of the earth. And so when we begin to talk about what it looks like to be witnesses, we're not just witnesses right where we are, but we are sent. And we're sent not just to the place where we live, which is true, but to the next place over and the furthest reaches and we keep going. And I'll tell you, as we go through Acts, just as a way to help hold the book together in your mind, this is really a summary statement of the whole book right there. Being witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's exactly what you see throughout Acts. The first few chapters is in Jerusalem and then they start to go out and then they start to cross thresholds into different nations and different tongues and different ethnicities. And it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And we get to the end of the book and Paul's in Rome. So we're going to see that unfold right here as the early church did exactly what Jesus calls us to do. But when we read that and we see the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth, uh, it's helpful to know some of the background of the world Jesus lived in and his disciples. If you know anything about the Jews and the Samaritans, you know, they did not get along. In fact, that's putting it politely. They hated each other. So much so that oftentimes when they traveled, they would go around Samaria to to, uh, avoid having to deal with them. And so what you see is Jesus calling out, you go to Jerusalem, Judea, and then he very uh, deliberately, I believe, put Samaria in there. You're going to all people and all nations to spread the glorious good news of what God has done. And it's almost like, uh, yes, Samaria is right there. Yes, it's part of it. But I think he very deliberately says that. It'd be kind of like today saying in our world, and you think about different nations and different things and and the way uh, there's conflicts going on in the world. And it'd be almost like Jesus saying, you go to Dawsonville and to Georgia and North Korea and the ends of the earth. And you go, right? You, You know what he means when he says that. The the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done is for all people and all nations and all cultures. And and I would tell you as well, when we begin to see what Jesus is saying and where he's sending us, it absolutely cuts off at the knees any idea of racism. God loves all people. They are all made in his image. It is for all nations and all cultures the world over. And so when we talk about being sent to be witnesses, we're sent throughout the world. But then I also want us to think about when we talk about the mission of what it means, it's not just being sent throughout the world to be just witnesses of just saying what Jesus did. But there's a fuller uh, picture of that in the way Jesus sends us out. John 20, 21, right after the resurrection, the disciples are literally hiding in a room and all of a sudden Jesus shows up in the middle of the room and he says, peace be with you. And then the next thing he says, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. Right? And I think that's John's version, John's retelling 
of the Great Commission. You've got Acts 1-8 and then John 20, 21. He shows up and he says, I'm sending you. It's the way the Father has sent me. And then you get Matthew chapter 28 where it tells it this way. Also taking place right around the time we are here. And Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And I think all three of those together give us a good picture of what it looks like to be sent. What our mission is the churches. It's to be witnesses who make disciples who are sent in the way Jesus was sent. Which is we love God and we follow him and we're obedient to him, which is exactly what he says in Matthew 28. Teach them to obey all that I commanded. That's what a disciple of Jesus looks like. Growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of your life and helping others to do the same. And we're sent into the world to do this. To be witnesses who make disciples to the ends of the earth by becoming growing in our obedience to Jesus. Growing in our love for him. Proclaiming boldly what he's done, that it's all what Christ has done for us by faith, through grace, we are saved. And he sends us out with those orders of what that looks like. Our mission is to be witnesses. Uh, Peter will say it this way. You're a holy priesthood, a royal nation. To proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of the darkness. Peter says the same thing. They're all on the same page. Jesus says, this is what it looks like. The disciples say yes, and they go and they begin to do this. And so the mission we get is to be witnesses, making disciples of the entire earth. And it's the mission of all believers. We say this frequently. If you've been here with us before, we we say this frequently here. You are the church. You don't go to church. The, The church is made of people, not this building. The church is not just an institution that we come here for certain things. It is you. When you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in you. You are now where God dwells. We are the church. And so we are sent out in this way to be on mission to proclaim who God is and what he's done. And doing that means obeying it, helping one another to obey what God's word tells us. Living that out, not just proclaiming it with our words, but with our lives. And so that is the mission that Jesus gives us. But when we get to that, oftentimes, I think... Yeah, but I'm not a missionary, right? I'm a whatever, fill in the blank, whatever you do. Or or I'm not a preacher. I'm not really a teacher. That's not the way God's gifted me. That's not really my thing. I'm just, I'm this, whatever that is. And we kind of go, yeah, yeah, okay, but that's not really my job. But I want you to see, as we move to the second part here, about the power with which Jesus calls us to do this, that that I'll just be real honest, that's a cop-out to say that. It doesn't mean that God's calling you to go be a missionary in a different part of the world. It doesn't mean you're going to plant a church or be a pastor, although you might. But it does mean you are part of the mission of making disciples who make disciples. This is for all believers. And I want to show you why exactly I say that. So go back to verse four, what he says. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But then he says in verse 8, but you will receive the power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as we begin to see the mission, but then the power with which Jesus, we will carry out his mission that he gives us. He says that it'll be the Holy Spirit working in you. Just so we're clear, we will flesh this out as we go further into Acts. But the Holy Spirit is something that all believers get in full in the moment they put their faith in Christ. All believers everywhere. The fullness of the Holy Spirit coming into your life when you put your faith in Jesus. And he says, you're going to wait and be clothed with power of the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to go be my witnesses. He even says to him, I want you to wait. Right in verse four, he says, wait here in Jerusalem until you have this power and then you're going to go. I don't know if you've ever considered this before. We can't say this for absolute certainty, but but recently there's some scholars that have said they believe that the disciples may have been teenagers. I want you just to think for a second how that changes the way you think about everything, you know, that happens in Acts and in the Bible. And from this point forward, if it's a bunch of teenagers. Suddenly, the things Peter says, right, the way Peter sticks his foot in his mouth over and over and jumps ahead and this will never be Lord and follow me and all these kind of things. So it makes perfect sense if he's 17. Now, we can't say that for certain. What we can say for certain is they were a bunch of fishermen. We can't say for certain that they were kind of a ragtag group of guys that he pulled together and said, follow me. And what we're going to see unfold in Acts is we're going to see someone like Peter, who denies Jesus just 40 days earlier, three times and runs off scared and says all these dumb things. And all of a sudden in chapter two, he's going to stand up and boldly proclaim the gospel and people are going to come to faith. And the difference is that he's waiting to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. And once he does, then all of a sudden everything changes. And so when we talk about the power with which we are sent to do this, Jesus says it'll be the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to think about that, think a little deeper about that. We see here that he says to wait and then he goes up and he tells them to wait. And so there's a connection here between the ascension and the Holy Spirit coming. If we read back in our Bibles and we go back and we look at everything that Jesus says, we see back in John 16, the night before Jesus is crucified, he actually tells them all this. He lays this out for them. He says, "Uh, truly, I tell you, it is good. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to go away, but then the spirit's going to come. And he says, when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And he says, he's telling you that he's going to come and about sin because people do not believe in me about righteousness because I'm going to the father where you can see me no longer and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. But what Jesus says, and I'm always blown away by this. They're sitting in a room. With. Christ. Man. God, man, perfect representation of who God is. And Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away. What? He says, I'm going to go away, but it's going to be better for you because I'm going to now send the spirit into your life. The Holy Spirit is going to come in fullness. But he tells them, I have to go away for this to come. 
And, and I think the image we get in Scripture is that Jesus ascends, and as he ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he takes his place, his work is now complete. He's finished everything that he came to do. We have been reconciled to God through what Christ has done, and we put our faith in him. And he takes his place at the right hand of the Father, and then he sends the Spirit into our life. And so the ascension comes first, and then he sends the Spirit. And I want you to think about why the ascension is important, thinking through all that. Just wrestling with this this week. But as Jesus ascends, he's no longer bound by time and space. He comes as a man and he limits himself. Philippians 2 tells you that he empties himself of all the things that he deserves of God by taking the form of a man, becoming a servant, walking on this earth. But when he ascends, he ascends back to his place in heaven, which is not just in the sky. It is outside of time and space where God rules all things. And he takes his seat at the right hand of the father. Jesus is reigning right now. And it's why he can say things like he says in Matthew 28. I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you wherever you go and all the things that you do. I am with you and I am there. And so he ascends to his place and then he sends the spirit into our life. And as we put our faith in Jesus, we get the Holy Spirit. And so we talk about the power with which we are to carry out what he has called us to do. It is the very indwelling of the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so when we think about that. I want you to think about when we say things like, yeah, but that's not me. What are you really saying? Oh, I can't do that. Because Jesus says it's the, the power of the spirit at work within you. But there's one other thing I want you to consider when we think about this, the mission with which he sent us. I was just blown away thinking about this particular point this week. You know, he says in verse one in this first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He said he began. He started. I'm just touching on the things that he started to do and teach. And he says until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, we have some idea. Luke covers some of this in Luke chapter 24 about what's going on in those 40 days. And one of the things that's happening in those 40 days is that Jesus teaches them how to read the Bible. I always say that's probably the greatest Bible study that ever happened in the history of the world. Jesus now finishing his work, his raised from the dead. It says in Luke chapter 24, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what's written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance of forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with the power from on high. So he says the same thing again. 
But I want you to see as he says, he then tells them that all of Scripture has been pointing to what Jesus would do. And he opened their minds to understand it. And they began to go, oh, the light comes on, right? He opened their minds to see all the prophecies and all the promises and how every bit of it, the temple, the law, all of it was pointing forward to the finished work of Jesus. And so he shows them that in those 40 days. And so as we go out to make disciples and proclaim what Jesus has done, we're doing the same thing. We're pointing to how all of this comes to Jesus. Which is why we have the conviction here of Christ-centered preaching and coming back to Jesus and all these things. Whenever somebody asks, well, why do you talk about Jesus every week in every text? Go, uh, Luke 24. Because Jesus says it's all about him. He's the, the ends of all of it. And so that's part of it. But here's the thing I want you to consider as we're sent out and the power with which he sends us out to do this. There's this incredible thing in Ephesians chapter 2 that I was just kind of blown away with. If you want to turn there, the blue stripe Bible at 634, the white one, it's on page 568. But Ephesians chapter 2, listen to what Paul says. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. But this is what I want you to see. Verse 17. All of that's talking about what Jesus has done for you and the way he's done it. And then he says this in verse 17. And he, talking about Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Do you, do you hear what he says? When the spirit moves and God opens your eyes and the word is proclaimed and witnesses are given, Jesus comes and teaches you. The one who does it is Jesus teaches you. The spirit is working. The father is drawing. The son is teaching. I go, man, when I start to think about the power with which Jesus is sending us out to make witnesses, to proclaim the good news of what he's done to every corner of the earth. That's overwhelming. It's kind of scary. I don't know. What if people don't listen? The, the good news is you go, I, I can't do that. The good news is you're not the one who does that. The father calls, the spirit illuminates, the son teaches and people come to faith. God graciously allows us to be part of what he is doing. And so when we say, yeah, I can't do that. I, I'm not a teacher or I'm not a preacher or I'm not gifted in that way. I'm, I'm not good at talking to people about that. I get nervous. That's okay. It's not you. It's God that's going to do it. He's allowed us to be part of what he's doing. He wants us to see his glory spreading over the face of the earth. His graciousness. He says, oh, I want you to come be part of this. So when, when someone is on my heart to pray for, it's like God tapping you on the shoulder and go, hey, I'm about to do something. I want you to be part of it. 
Right? Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? When they get all caught up over whether it's Apollos or Paul or who they follow or what that looks like. No, 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 I'm with this preacher and this. And no, no, I like this one and I like that. And all these kind of things they're arguing over. And this is what Paul says. He says, what after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. And they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. So we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Do you hear what he says? He says, you want to make it all about Apollos or Paul or this person or that person? It's God that does this. And he's calling us to be part of it. And we get to play our role in that. And for some, that means you're going to go move to the other side of the world and be a missionary. For some, it means you're going to bake a plate of cookies and walk across the street to your neighbor and hand them some cookies and introduce yourself. But we're all called into this. And the glorious good news is it's not my power And it's not your power, but it's the spirit working in us to proclaim who God is. And he's going to do what he's going to do. And we get to be part of it. And so when we think about how we make steps to grow in that, I just want to encourage you. The authority and the boldness, the ability to do this doesn't rest with you, but with God. And because it doesn't rest with you and it rests with God. You should have great boldness. You should speak with great authority. You ever thought about that? You go, oh, wait a second. Who am I? I'm all messed up and I still got problems and I don't have everything all together. That's okay. It's not about you. Bearing witness to who Jesus is is and what he's done is not all about how good you are. It's all about how great and gracious God is. And so when we see the way in which God moves, it should lead us to be bold. In our witness. God's going to do this. He is doing this. You are evidence as you sit here that he's doing this. And so there should be a great boldness. But when you understand what he's saying, when you understand what Paul says, it's not Apollos. It's not me. When you hear what Paul says. In Ephesians 2. It's Jesus teaching the spirit illuminating. Not only should it give you a great boldness, but it should also give you a great humility. God's the one that's doing this. He's the one at work in this. He's proclaiming his glory and his name, and he's allowed us to be part of it. And so when you think about what that looks like in your life, I would just ask, who's the person in your life that you know? Who's in front of you right now? A friend, a coworker, a neighbor? The person that's right in front of you that does not yet know Jesus. Would you begin to pray for them? Would you begin to ask God, what does this look like for me to be a witness of what you've done to this person in my life? To go, well, I don't know who that is. I say, okay, take a step back. Ask God to show you who it is. The same God that's moving 
The same God that has commanded us, the same God that you're going to see in chapter 2, 3,000 people come to faith in one day, is still working today and he wants to use you in that. And we get to be part of what God's doing. And the glorious good news is that it doesn't rest with you on whether or not they're coming to faith. God's the one that's going to do the work, but he chooses to allow us to be part. And so I just ask you to pray for who that person is. Maybe there's more than one. Maybe make a list that you just start to pray for. Better yet, share it with your missional community group. I feel like these are the people God's putting right in front of me today. Would you pray with me about that? And I think when we begin to do that, when we begin to function as we see and as we go through Acts, when we begin to function like they did here, we're going to be blown away at what God does. Because it's the same God moving and working that was working in Acts chapter 1. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of what you've done for us. I thank you for this picture of your faithfulness that you send us to this mission of going to the world over, but you don't leave us in and of ourselves to do it. But you promise to clothe us with the very presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, that through the Spirit we have a unity with you and you are with us always in all things, walking through That when we proclaim your word, it's the spirit moving and you teaching and we're just vessels that you're working through. And we thank you for allowing us to be part of it. I pray for each one here that you would give us a great boldness with humility to proclaim the glorious good news of what you've done. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.